Our scripture this morning is from the last part of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, this is the last part of our faith explosion series where we've been mining out principles from Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. And the question behind all this is, uh, what are the principles that we can learn that help us understand how this persecuted minority of a church grew within the next two, three hundred years to become the dominant uh, faith expression in the known world at that time. How did that happen and what early clues do we have? And we've been finding out that there are several of those clues buried in these two chapters. So here's Acts chapter 4 beginning with verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. None of them claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work within them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray for a moment. God, thank you for this wonderful congregation, for what we're learning together. Thank you for the changes that you continue to bring in each of our lives. Make us more like Jesus. That's our our greatest prayer. Make us more like Jesus in the way we think, the way we talk, the way that we express love and show love, and the way that we go about work, and the way that we neighbor, and the way that we labor. Guide us through this time. Guide us as we uh, move towards the end of the year, and even though it doesn't feel like it weather-wise, as we move closer to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Give us words to say and a heart that cares for other people and cares about how we live because Jesus has come into this world. Lord, we know that there are some who are part of our congregation who are sick or who are wrestling with an illness. I think of my friend Ron who's in the hospital this morning and asked that you would strengthen him, that you'd give him the best care that he can get. And uh, there are others too. I think of friends as they're approaching the holidays and uh, feeling left out, and I, I pray that we'd find ways to include as much as possible and to allow people f- to feel that they are part of a larger family that really does care. Lord, guide us and guide our witness collectively as a congregation as we go about life with those who are around us. I pray they would see in us the heart that you are developing, not that we're perfect, but that we are definitely in process and that we are willing to grow where you want us to grow. Guide us this morning as we look into your word. Use it to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. More than 10 years ago, James Emery White, who has served for many years as a pastor, author, college president, and even for a short time as a seminary president, he wrote a book called The Church in an Age of Crisis. No, he wasn't talking about the the church in the age of COVID, although some of the lessons fit, but he was writing to acknowledge the ongoing clash 
between the overall drift of the culture of our nation and the culture of a Christian church if we are becoming the kind of people that God wants us to become. Here is what he saw more than 10 years ago. There are elements of American culture that were becoming dominant. The focus on self. God is seen as unnecessary. God is seen as a moralist or a therapist. The feelings are essential, but truth doesn't matter so much. Fame becomes the ultimate pursuit. Social justice is king. Exclusive claims about God or about Jesus or about faith are unwelcome, but the idea of many paths to God is cool. The modern family is one where cohabitation trumps marriage. Divorce becomes routine. Gender lines are continually blurred and where childhood innocence disappears. A Christian culture, the ways, practices, and ideologies where God is king, Jesus is Lord, where our identity is given to us by God, seems often at odds with the culture that I just described a moment ago. In the same way that the culture of the church naturally collides with the cultural drift of a nation at any time, the early church community was headed for a clash of cultures back in the first century. When that clash occurs, and it happens over and over again at different periods, we often see the best of what God has in mind for the church in every era. Today, we're going to conclude our Faith Explosion series where we are looking at principles that contributed to the spread of the Christian faith in the earliest years of the Christian church. Today's topic is grace-driven generosity. We're going to look at how the church responded to the opposition that we've been talking about the last couple of Sundays. My question is, what is grace-driven generosity and how does it develop? So right up front, I want to give you the big idea that I'm working with this morning. Grace-driven generosity rises from belonging, leads to a passion for meeting needs, and fuels the mission ahead. Let's look at this concept of grace-driven generosity. The first is the thought that it rises from a strong sense of belonging. Notice the way verse 32 begins, just the first half of the verse. All the believers were were one in heart and mind. That's a wonderful description of a church. Here's what I find fascinating about this scene. Peter and John had just been through a tremendous ordeal that stemmed from an act of kindness. They invoked the name of Jesus while extending God's healing power. This resulted in a night in jail, a confrontation with the Sadducees, and then a trial with the Sanhedrin. We've walked through each of these items over the last month or so. Finally, they were released after being given threats against their welfare if they continued to preach in the name of Jesus Christ or to mention the concept, the idea, the reality of the resurrection. That combination fueled deeper loyalty and a sense of tremendous belonging in the very first church. The Jerusalem church is a fascinating reality that God longed to bring into existence This is the seed of the community that Jesus died for. And it exploded on the scene in the power of the news of the resurrection. Now this combination of the cross, the resurrection, the filling of the Holy Spirit, these threats and the opposition that the church was facing contributed to this powerful sense of belonging for the world's very first church. 
This all takes place only a few months after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter and John are released from jail and trial, and they head to the church. Christians have just entered in an existence marked by threats, and what do they do? They, they head to the church. Of course, there was no church building to go to. The church was simply a gathering of Jesus' followers wherever they met. It's not until Acts chapter 11 that we find the second church of all time in Antioch where Jesus' followers are called Christians for the first time. So these Jesus' followers were simply known as, as people of the way, the way of Jesus or, or Jesus' followers or something like that. But when trouble or hardship hit, they instantly gathered together and they identified with each other and there was a powerful bond that drew them together. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these sections of the Bible, from the time that I was a young teenager, I've longed to be a part of something like that. There are times, there are moments when I've had the sense of this intense kind of belonging here at North River. I remember the very first Easter service that we had in the warehouse days back in 1990. And all of a sudden, there was the largest gathering we've had up to that point, and, and the emotion in the room was overwhelming. North River was only about eight months old, and, and we were just starting to get used to having about 100 people, and it seemed really large, and it was amazing. And then, then I remember a few years later, we had an outdoor service at the beginning of the driveway. All this land was filled with forest. We hadn't built the building yet, and we had, I think, a truck bed that we sat on for a stage where we put our band, and people brought their lawn chairs and blankets, and we sat outside, and we did it in October thinking, well, maybe it will be not so cold. Well, we had a beautiful day like today. It was 75 degrees, and, and the emotion of being on this property for the very first worship service that we had, years before we could afford to even build a building, was overwhelming. We were saying, you know, we're all in. This is a great day, and it fostered, again, that sense of belonging. Or I think of the first few Sundays here in this room, despite how we were spaced apart, after we could come back after the shutdown had happened just a couple of years ago. And there weren't nearly as many people in the room, even as there are right now, but still there were tears flowing because just to be in the presence of other Christians again and able to worship openly in public was, was a tremendous thing for us. So this grace-driven generosity rises from this strong sense of belonging. Here's the second development that I see happening here in this passage Belonging prompts a passion for meeting needs. So if we take that verse and we stretch it all the way out, all the believers were one in heart and mind. None of them claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. The opposition and threats against Peter and John, along with their mission-driven prayer session that had just happened in the passage just before this, fueled this sense of belonging. And then that sense of belonging led the way to how they responded to the physical needs of the rest of the congregation. We, uh, we have a class that Todd talked about just a moment ago, but our, our membership class is our Belong 101 class. That's where we start. It's such a powerful concept. Sometimes people have to have a sense of belonging before they can even wrestle with all of the things that we believe. And so that's where we start. This group, we're told here by Luke, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, 
didn't think of their possessions simply as their own in that moment of opposition and great difficulty. Those who had more shared with those who had less or those who had none. And this was done to such a degree that verse 34 says that there were no needy persons among them. Now, I don't think that that meant that forevermore they excluded people at the door if they came in with needs so that they could say there are no needy people here. Rather, it's describing an ongoing situation that as quickly as they could, they responded and it became a natural reaction within this congregation. I was thinking of that song that Pat introduced uh, this morning in that opening worship time. I hadn't heard that one before. But one of the lines in there is really dangerous. If all of you means less of me, take everything. Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to that. There's an example of this kind of spirit that I've been recently watching, watching in our world today. Uh, a friend of mine is uh, Jeremy Rinney, who for 18 or 20 years was the pastor at South Shore Baptist Church in Hingham. And today he's the pastor of Sanibel Community Church on Sanibel Island in Florida. And if you remember, just uh, a month and a half ago or so, uh, Hurricane Ian wiped out a number of the communities and the island uh, gatherings in Florida, and particularly Sanibel got hit really hard. It wiped out the only bridge that connects Sanibel to the mainland. And as we saw pictures of that develop, I was looking intensely knowing that I knew somebody who lived there. Cottages on the beach were completely wiped away and went out to sea. Uh, the trees are virtually gone. Those that are left are really sparse in what had once been a really lush tropical-type environment. Most of the residential homes have had severe roof damage and water damage, and most of the contents in these homes have been ruined. For the homes that are still standing, they have to go in and rip out all of the drywall and all the carpet and all of the tile and all the cabinets because all that stuff has been ruined by a collection of, of seawater and rain and sewage and sand and it's, it's just awful and heartbreaking. So I've, I've, been, I've been emailing with Jeremy and I've been reading his Facebook posts and he's just been describing what it's been like, the heartbreaking reality on the first Sunday when um, he woke up early in the morning and said normally he would go for a walk early on the beach and he'd kind of rehearse in his mind his sermon for that Sunday. He said there was no beach to walk on, there was no church to go to. He's sitting on the bathroom floor in a hotel room bawling and wondering, will we ever meet again as a congregation? Will we ever be the same as what we knew just a week ago? And he knew that the answer was, no, it, it wouldn't ever be quite the same. Homeowners can only get to the island by boat, which slows up any cleanup work they want to do. And then heartbreak and loss overwhelms them when they discover that they've either lost their homes or if their homes are still there, it's going to be years before they can rebuild and move in or before the bridge is rebuilt that will allow life to fully return. One of his recent newsletters was called, As Any Has Need, and it was based on reading Acts 2, 42 to 47. I'd like to read to you an excerpt of that letter, and it's just an excerpt. He said, I've always loved this description of the very first church in Jerusalem. The church was both simple and powerful. Brothers and sisters, this is happening throughout our church family, and it's remarkable. Here's some of what I'm seeing. Displaced church members are living with one another, and it's not just for a one-night slumber party. Members from up north are sharing their cars with those who have lost cars in the storm surge and allowing people to live in their condos. 
Members are supporting one another financially, providing food, clothing, and shelter, literally and dramatically. I've never seen anything like this before, and certainly not on this scale. A little while later, he writes, In light of all of this, I've been pondering a question. Why have I never seen this kind of financial care before, both inside the church and between churches? Why have I only read about it in Acts chapter 2 and 4 and 11, but never experienced it? The answer that makes the most sense to me is best summed up in Acts 2.45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I think that last phrase is the key, as any had need. The early church was not a commune, it was a family. And family helps one another when there's a need. This disaster has landed on our congregation in a place of, or landed our congregation in a place of massive need, and the family of God has responded in a massive way. God has brought our congregation to its knees. It's a beautiful thing. Our normally self-sufficient little island church has been thrust into a posture of dependence on one another and on other congregations. In what other circumstance would we get to see the provision of God surging like a mighty current toward us through His people? When else would we have had such an opportunity to live out Acts 2.44? Here's the big idea. Grace-driven generosity rises from belonging, leads to a passion for meeting needs, and then it fuels the mission ahead. Generosity, when expressed, when from the heart, fuels the mission of what God is doing in the world. Verse 33 shows us this. It says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So right after describing the way that they were responding, here we see this demonstration of great power. So notice the connection between generosity and the mission. While they were sharing whatever they had to meet the needs of others, the apostles were experiencing greater power as they testified about the resurrection. The two go hand in hand. This again shows how the resurrection of Jesus was central to their teaching and to their witness. The facts of the resurrection meant that God's power over sin and death had been released into the world. Since the apostles had seen the risen Jesus, they simply had no fear of death and no fear of persecution because they were thinking, what's the worst you can do? We've already seen them do that to Jesus and he's alive. And it just took fear out of the equation. And this generosity then was taken to a higher level here in Acts chapter 4. Verse 34 says, From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Sometimes when you read that verse, what starts to come to mind is, Oh boy. What's God going to ask me to do? (laughs) We get scared. We think, oh, wow, land and houses. You're going to sell land and houses. I look at the controlling thought or the controlling phrase in that uh, with the words that say, from time to time. Meaning it didn't all happen at once, but people were moved by circumstances that arose or by different people who were in need. And if they had the ability to do something, they did it. So some took the money from their sales and they put it at the apostles' feet. This wasn't socialism. Again, this was a from time to time, meaning it was happening in an ongoing way. It wasn't forced. It wasn't required. Some still owned homes. Some still owned land or they wouldn't have been able to sell it. 
And it was done to meet needs and to further the mission. And then there's a name that is listed. Barnabas is listed there as an example of this kind of generosity. So we're told that he sold a piece of land on Cyprus. I'm told when I do the research that Cyprus was a very, very wealthy place. And so this piece of land would have been valuable. And he gave the money to the apostles. He became what we would call an extravagant giver. You ever wonder why he was mentioned by name? I think one reason is that every church has different kinds of givers. We start by being an occasional giver. Church is new to you, and and so you put some money in the bucket, or you you sign up and and you give something for the first time, and you feel pretty good about it, but you're not ready to do that on a regular basis. And then after a while, we become habitual givers, where we say, well, you know what? I'm going to give something on on a regular way. I'm going to do this more often because I believe that God has given me the ability to help others, and and I have a sense of belonging, and we give out of that belonging. But then what we try to lead people toward is becoming principled givers, where there's a portion of what God flows into your hands that we regularly give back in a way that becomes measurable and predictable because now what we're doing is saying, I I set my family budget with this goal in mind that I want to invest back in what what, what God is doing. And at times, we become extravagant givers where there's an ability to give way beyond what we had before because God blessed us with the opportunity or the resources and there's a need there and we do that. And God's the one who moves the heart to do that. Within every congregation, we have people at all four different levels. And so Barnabas is mentioned, even though the Bible usually doesn't uh, trumpet the names of people who give a whole lot. I think there's a second reason for this. Luke was letting us know more about Barnabas as a key character who demonstrated a life of saying yes to God. So he says yes in this moment. He's going to say yes a little bit later when, if we were to go through all of Acts, you know, for the rest of this year, and God says, I want you to go to the home of a man named Simon the Tanner. There's a a young man named Saul of Tarsus there, and I want you to go to Saul and, and pray over him. And The disciples were scared to death of Saul. At that point, he was the chief bounty hunter who was rounding up Christians, and and some of them died from that. And Barnabas says, yes, and he goes, and he finds Saul. And he would say yes to becoming part of the first church planting team that would move around the known world and, and would risk speaking the name of Jesus into cultures where other gods were served. And sometimes they were beaten for it, sometimes they were jailed for it, but churches grew in the midst of all of that. Barnabas is listed by name because we see something of his heart when he responds in this situation. Generosity fuels the mission. And then here's a fourth observation that I make from this passage. God's grace flows in communities like this. Verses 33 and 34, when we take them together, read this way. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work within them all that there were no needy persons among them. Here's the phrase that jumps out at me when I read this. And God's grace was so powerfully at work. That's what I long for. That's what we long for that in every situation, and each situation is going to be different, that God's grace flows through the congregation in such a way that His grace is at work within us. 
Wild things happen when God's grace is flowing through a congregation. People who had been opposed to God, opposed to faith, find their hearts and their minds are changed, and they have a turnaround spiritually when grace flows. People who've been opposed and bickering with each other, who've had great gaps in their relationship, find a way to come together because grace is flowing. We reach out to neighbors and we care about people that we never even talked about or never even knew before because grace is flowing from the people. We become known as a place where if you're in trouble, this is where you should come because grace is flowing among the people. Grace is often defined as God's unmerited favor. And this is an example of God's grace being poured out on the local church community in Jerusalem, the very first church in existence. And whenever this happens, His grace works powerfully among the people. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him who are called according to His purpose. And in this case, the opposition and the threats and the intimidation and even throwing Peter and, and John in jail for a night was working to create a powerful bond among the early church. And God's purpose was being revealed through them. And so God used the threats and the persecution to light the church on fire. And he's using today the devastation of Hurricane Ian in some places to light churches and communities on fire where they're not dependent upon their wealth to have an impact. What's happening in their, in their poverty and their loss in the way that they are coming together, the world is watching and grace is flowing powerfully. This is what I long for North River, that this becomes a place where over and over through every situation where God's grace flows through our community and the results that he longs to see happen become a regular event around here. And it's happening. We just want and seek more and more of God's grace. So, here's the thought for the day. Grace-driven generosity rises from belonging. We want you to belong leads to a passion for meeting needs. Interesting, we're doing this on the day when Matt and Deb were standing up here and saying, you know, I want, I want to enfold people into the caring connection. Here's maybe one way where you can demonstrate that you're responding with a yes to God with where he's driving you through this message. And it fuels the mission ahead. We're on mission for God. We're bringing his kingdom into this world, little by little, Jesus came to announce it, and every time another person surrenders to Jesus, his kingdom grows. And we're a part of that. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us a mission. Thank you for giving us these insights and principles that we've been looking at for the last eight weeks from the very first church that you started. And in the positive ways, make us like them. With all the negatives, the fears, and, and all the challenges that they face, we're already like them. We have the same fears. We have the same concerns. We have the same built-in resistance. Open our heart to where you're taking each of us. Open our collective hearts to where you are leading us as a church. Help us make a difference. We pray that you will continue to allow your grace to flow into the church so that the grace can flow into the neighborhood and, and that your grace can flow into our nation. We believe that Jesus is the answer. Even though we're going to vote and we're going to pray and we're going to use our best decisions this week, 
we know that Jesus ultimately is the answer. And so we pray for his influence in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and worship and gather together and celebrate and laugh and do life. Amen.